Howdy. Hola. 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 Exactly. <laughs> Welcome to Interface Crossfire, where Andrew Lilja and Ian Fuchs disagree about a topic for an hour. God, I hope it doesn't take an hour. In this week's episode, we talk about education in er, uh, computers in the classroom and education technology. We do. We will. So I think that just dropping computers into classrooms is dumb and bad and doesn't help anybody. Dropping as in providing one for all students, not dropping as in yeah, removing like, computers from the classroom. Because that actually could, oh, have, yeah. that could have two meanings. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. I didn't think of that. No, no, no. I, I mean, dropping them on students' heads. Okay. So I, I would agree that abusing students in the classroom is probably not <laughs> the uh, ideal way to go. Um, but, but I think that uh, providing students with computers uh, or iPads or Chromebooks or whatever, some type of connected device, uh, is definitely a almost a necessity in the 2016 classroom and definitely in the 2020 classroom and 2025 classroom it's it's almost a requirement at this point so i disagree because i think that uh the vast majority of students who are in a classroom already know how to use a computer from their time spent outside of the classroom and adding a computer to it doesn't actually change in an effective way how students learn it can but it just doesn't right now you have to actually write a curriculum and design the systems specifically for that purpose. So I think, I think the big, the big difference here in our, our take on it is, as you're saying, students already know computers because they have computers at home. And I think that when you, right, they have, they got this one, right? The, the phone. Well, but you have to also consider that, and this is not a, a blanket statement by any, by any means, but many schools that are doing these computer in the classroom, uh, tend to be, more underserved areas where they're getting grant money to do this. So the students may not have actually had much access to computers outside of public libraries. Like, yes, they may have an old smartphone or something like that. But I also think the, the difference in, you know, their iPhone or their Android phone or whatever they're using as a smartphone and a physical computer is, is pretty vast right now as far as what you can do, like, I know for me, I would not, I, I love typing on my iPhone and I could do it all day, but I would hate to write a paper on my iPhone. Like having, see, I've done that on your phone. Yeah, absolutely. And see, I, I think that it, it, it encourages, and this goes back to our discussion about poor punctuation and poor grammar. I think typing on a device right. that we're used to doing that kind of stuff on teaches it the wrong way and that a computer or an iPad or tablet of some sort is a much more effective mm-hmm. way to learn the proper way to do things. And again, I also, I'm also looking at it more from the aspect of to do most jobs in the current era and definitely in future era, you have to have experience on a computer and be proficient on a computer. And I think that by providing students with computers or some type of computer like device in the classroom, it's teaching them proficiency in the programs, the applications they'll be using potentially in right. their future career. 
Um, so I have some thoughts on this. Okay. Uh, when it comes to people, to poverty in people, it's actually, it's not so much that they're not using phones or, or computer. It's that they're using, they're not using computers or anything like that. It's that they rely on their phone uh, to go on the internet and that kind of thing, as opposed to using a computer or some other device to do it. So I think you're right. Like learning how to use the technology they're going to wind up using in like later life in the workforce or whatever means having to use how to use learn how to use a computer or whatever in a classroom because they're not going to have access to that at home. But I also don't necessarily agree that a desktop computer is what they're going to be using down the line, right? Like I think there's a a growing number of people who will not use a computer for their work because, or at least they, they will, but not in the same way that we use it now. But and I also think that when it comes to typing, like these kids, so we might not, we're pretty good at it. We're not amazing at it because we didn't grow up with it. I mean, if you talk to a kid who's been using a, a virtual keyboard since they were like five, right? Like they're going to be pretty proficient at it. And I bet you a lot of them can do a lot of long form writing on it. Sure, and I, I know that's that's a big thing. And I've I've read a lot and um, uh, mm-hmm. in the classroom, especially with iPads, these kids now are used to typing on. Uh, on the iPad screen and they don't even need an external keyboard and they're proficient at it. They can type, you know, 60, 80, a hundred words a minute on glass. And, and to me that seems right. unbelievable, but I think, right. So, so my take on this is I'm not necessarily saying kids need to have a laptop in the classroom that we should be giving laptops to every student. But I think having a, a piece of technology that is the same for all students, that is consistent for all students, that offers the same mm-hmm. experience for all students, is very important in the classroom. And oh that my it God. only makes sense to go that th- that becomes the norm. Because I totally disagree. When, with you. when we were kids, we all got books. You know, here's the book, here's the textbook you need. Read this textbook. Here's a notebook. Yeah. Here's a pen. Yeah, was, now go do all of this. It was terrible. It was terrible. This is this is the same wonderfully terrible experience for the kids of today, just on the new version of those things. So instead of having a notebook and a pen and a book that you're taking notes out of, now you have a, um, an iPad and your fingers and you're typing notes on, on glass and your book is still terrible and you can reference your book and type your notes at the same time, or you can look something up in class and be proactive about that. And that's, Yes, part of it is teachers embracing it and using it correctly and not just using it as a, a tool to pacify students who aren't behaving or say, go read about this and then write about it. Like, I, I do understand that there there is some shaping of the curriculum that has to be done also to make it work, but there's no reason that I can come up with that they shouldn't have those tools in the classroom. I agree, but I think that the, in order for them to be useful, you have to get rid of the, the the linear classroom experience as it exists now, because there's this growing sense in the in the the, the academic literature. When I say academic, I mean like academic research about how people learn. That what's really effective is having people explore problem spaces on their own. And so what that means is that you don't necessarily want to give you, you don't want to have them throw a textbook at them and have them read it and take notes and then do a test on it because that's not an effective way for people to learn things. Um, I think a lot of the power of putting computers and stuff in the classroom and giving everybody access to them is the ability to give them highly structured. Okay. So you can give them, you can give them tasks to do, to learn about something that run in a gamut from highly structured to basically free form. 
and then it can adapt to their ability and needs as needed. And so right now the machine learning to do that isn't necessarily there, but that's what teachers are for, right? So a teacher can know like this kid needs particular help in this area. So we're going to give him a more structured environment. And as he completes these tasks, he learns more and more, but this girl is already pretty proficient in this. And so we're going to give her a much more freeform experience that allows her to explore the problem space and the areas that she might not necessarily know, or she might want to know more about in a way that she is self-directed. And maybe you still have assessments or something at the end. Maybe you track what they're doing on the, the platform to see how they're, how it's going. But the idea is that instead of saying everybody's going to do the same thing, we're all going to do it at the same time. You can say instead, everybody's going to learn the same topics, but we're going to do it at our own pace and we're going to explore in the way that makes sense to us the most. So instead of a student being forced to sit in a class and listen, they get to like explore. So in, and this is going to, this is going to go back a ways in 2011, I was working at my alma mater and we had, it was right after the iPad had come out and I did a, some research on what they called the flipped classroom and wrote a little thing about the next wave of classroom technology and how iPads and computers are making their way into the classroom. And one of the big things they talk about with this flipped classroom concept is that instead of coming into class, lecture and take notes, that class time is a time for students to ask questions, do their work, and collaborate with one another or work with the teacher on understanding and and furthering their understanding of whatever the topic at hand was. And that when it comes to actually like, and working on homework, and then when it comes to like, okay, now here's the next chapter, do that on your own time. Because anybody can go home and just read a chapter of a book and and, and in theory gain some understanding. But to really get the understanding and to, you know, put it in numbers or to prove that you have the understanding of it and, and kind of, oh, what's the word? Um, exemplify that they have the understanding, I guess. You just to demonstrate that you have right. that knowledge. That, that those kind of things, if a student's not understanding it, when they go home and do the homework, there's no one to ask. So then they come in the next day and their homework's not done. Right. But if they, if they can right. sit down in class and they can work through the process and when they stumble or run into a roadblock, they can turn around and say, you know, teacher, how do I do this thing? I don't understand. This this part doesn't make sense. And use the classroom as the time to reinforce right. the learning instead of the time to, quote, do the learning. And then you're on your own for the reinforcement. In theory, that's a cool idea, right? The idea that so it relies on the, the concept that uh, teachers are the expert and so you can have students explore on their own and then consult the expert when they need help. Right. But where I think it falls down is that oftentimes teachers are not the expert and also it requires self-motivation outside the classroom to do essentially what they were going to do in the classroom anyway. So now it's instead of, I mean, it's truly flipped in that they're going to be reading the textbook outside of the classroom and then coming in and doing the work there, but they're still doing linear stuff and they're still all expected to proceed at the same rate doing the same things. And if that style of learning doesn't work for a student, being able to talk to the teacher doesn't make it any more or less effective. What I think really works well is being able, it's self-directed and it can be goal-based and motivated and still shaped, but because it's self-directed, you can choose the learning style and the methodology that works best for you to make decisions. So it doesn't have to be like taking textbooks out of the classroom or whatever. It's just, it's, it's a, a new way of teaching kids that rely on them figuring out how they learn best on their own. Sure. And, and I know some of this really goes to the idea of using like the way that colleges do, do learning where college is much more self-learning 
and the classroom is a time for reinforcement, especially for the the more uh, degree specific things and less about the like general uh, general studies courses. Like math is math. You're going to go to class. You're going to go right. through math. You're going to do math, and then you're going to do homework, and then you're going to turn it in. And that's pretty much the end of it. But things that are more based around understanding right. principles and expressing your understanding of principles and right. you know that kind of stuff. It's it's much more a college focused type learning style and seeing that trickle down into high school and middle school starts to make more sense. Um, but I think that the, the balance to be had is figuring out how can I do like the flip classroom idea, but also still be doing some teaching in the classroom. And, and some, some of the things I've seen are maybe you have like an every other day schedule or you have one hour of actual learning. Like let's say it's a two hour class. You have one hour of the teacher lecturing and an hour of, now learn and demonstrate what you've learned. And and so then it accommodates the students who maybe if they learn better one way or learn better the other way, now they definitely sure. have an hour of the two-hour class every day or a portion of the week every week that's going to be their learning style. And then the inverse time, because you still have, like if, it, if they understand the lecture but don't understand the self-taught stuff, now in that hour of self-taught time, they can work with the teacher or work with another student to try to reinforce what they learned in more of a luxury type situation and less of the kind of lost way of learning. Sure. Yeah. And I think we're, we're, we're both circling around the same point, which is that putting computers in, isn't enough. You also have to like do something different with the curriculum in order to actually make them effective. Right. Yeah. So, so what you I thought remember- was going to be us disagreeing is really us agreeing. It's just, right. it's just that the school you can't, like you said, you can't just drop a computer into a classroom and say, this is going to solve all of our problems, but there's no, there's no reason not to have a computer in the classroom as long as the curriculum that's being taught utilizes that technology and takes advantage of that. And I think that again, the classroom of 2016 is not the classroom of 2006 or 2004 or 2002 when we were in high school and middle school. Like, the class of 2016 isn't even really the same as the class of 2013. Right. And, and so as you, as you start moving forward, you look at the students now who are in say, uh, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, somewhere in there that are part of these schools where they're getting a Chromebook or a Mac or an iPad or whatever right. in the classroom. It makes perfect sense that they're getting that because now they're using the tools that they're used to They're You're not trying to mm-hmm. back solve for, Oh, you've been typing on glass for the last twelve years. Now here's a pen. Good luck taking notes. Like, I, right, exactly. look at your hand. It suits like, what they're not. We learned how to do pen and paper long before we learned computer stuff. I can't take notes in a meeting on pen and paper because it looks horrible. But I can take right. notes like a wizard on my iPad. Right. So one of the benefits is that you can actually uh, you can get rid of all the bullshit about like you have to write with a pen. And, and paper or something like that. You can actually focus on the curriculum and the knowledge and make sure that students can learn things on their own in the way that, and, and do things, do the support things. So taking notes and, and, and reading and reading with music or TV or whatever playing, you can do all that in a method that actually is going to suit them the best as opposed to forcing them to do something that the way they would, they would prefer not to. Sure. I also think there's a, I think a, a big, a big thing here with the, the type of content students can, take advantage of on digital devices that you can't take advantage of in a paper textbook, audio, video, uh, 
imagery, things that are updated. Like think about like a, a, a virtual textbook. Let's say today this is the theory of interface and tomorrow the theory of interface changes completely. That book could be updated tomorrow with the most current information. Yes, it's not ideal for your information to change mid-stride, <laughs> but, but if something were to change, if all of a sudden one plus one didn't equal two, the book could be updated tomorrow. The paper book, especially with right. the way most schools work, you may not see that update for six or seven years. So you have to say, I know it says one plus one is two, but you're just going to have to ignore that for now because that, that's changed. You could also, you can do some really powerful stuff too with interactivity. So I'm thinking you'd have to, of course, suit it to different things, but I learned a lot of chemistry and biology and economics, uh, all learning models in textbooks, but not really having a good sense of how those things work. So we'd have a textbook. I remember what we would do usually is we'd have, get together in a study group. We'd have one person plug their computer in where we had modeling software that we were allowed to use. And it was inevitably terrible. Uh, and then we would have... Um, uh, the rest of us all have computers open at like various websites and resources. And we all have different textbooks and stuff lying around, cut the tables covered and stuff. And this was far from the most ideal way to learn things because it meant that we constantly had to flip back and forth between pages and go to all these different things. And what would have been really nice is if we could have had digital textbooks that had the information we wanted already there. So we could have learned how the chemical uh, concentrations on either side of a neuron cell layer influenced its action potential, that kind of thing. And then actually in the textbook page itself, manipulated examples so we could see what was going on by actually making changes in the textbook while also having the the, the, the written explanation of what we were doing. And Brett Victor has some couple of ideas about that, about having uh, text be interactive so you can change the way, so you, so you can like, you can change numbers or something like that in what you're reading and then see how it actually influences things. And he talks about this in terms of climate change. So you could do like, okay, if we take three cars off the road this year, then or every year for the next 20 years, here's how that influences carbon. But then you as the reader can manipulate that number up and down with other variables to see how things change as long as you make different, or see how things change with those variables changing. And I think it's a really cool way and a really powerful way of just bringing in like really just a small amount of interactivity to the classroom, but that could have a huge potential now somebody learns because now they can experiment with what you've been telling them and actually fully like master that knowledge. Right. And like I said, I, th I think a lot of this goes to what, what you do with the technology, Wh whether you, right. whether you leverage the technology as something to enhance the learning experience or you're just using it as a, this is now the replacement textbook, this is now the replacement for pen and paper. And that being right. the replacement pen and paper, like you said, doesn't enhance the classroom and doesn't make sense and really makes it kind of unnecessary. But if you're utilizing the technology to bring whatever you're learning to life, whether it's digital models of architecture or design or the human body or the universe, mm -hmm. the fact that you can now take what was a flat 2d image that didn't do anything. And now you can pull it apart and expand it and zoom in on it and see what each piece is starts to make it feel more real, which then hopefully improves the understanding of the, the students utilizing it. Right. But I think what you can, so you can make it suit what they want, but you can also make it really powerful uh, by allowing them to, to combine what they have with the knowledge that is already extant on the internet in ways that allow them to explore and manipulate the data on their own and learn more with it. Right. Because now you can take what you're learning in the classroom, what you're learning from your books or whatever, and then take, combine that with your notes and everything else that exists out there and suddenly have a really powerful way of understanding 
these problems and solutions and why things work the way they do. Sure. And I also think being able to take it out of the classroom is extremely powerful. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the stuff right. that I did right. when I was in, in high school, the stuff that was computerized where it was computer models or whatever, I could only do at school. So then I never got the chance to explore at home. It was like, I have to remember back to the thing I did in the classroom on the computer. Now, if they, if each student has their own iPad or their own computer, when they're at home, they can now, whenever they want, they can pull that app or whatever back open or that site back open right. and re-examine it. And so when they're working on homework, instead of trying to think back or reference their notes, they can go straight to the source and say, no, what was it actually that I was trying to, to replicate here and do that? Right. Right. It's this thing we talked about that Brett Victor again, we had this thinking spaces, but it's in, instead of it being an int- or seeing spaces, he calls them. And I think this is a really cool concept. You're a little less uh, into it than me, but um, the way that, I mean, it, instead of it being an entire room to see in, it's now you have the ability to get all of your notes and everything uh, to be a way of continuing your learning about something. So you can just take all your notes and everything else that's going on in the classroom combined into a single location and take that information and allow you to do more stuff with it. Sure. And I think that was the promise, but I think for the first time people are actually sitting down and thinking about how these things can work and what the right method for teaching these things are, and then actually starting to build the tools for it. I would agree. If anybody wants to make the world a better place, but make no money doing it, this is the technology to get into. Yeah. Education. That's not, that's the field. Oh, that's not true though, because I suppose, I mean, business is where the money is. So as long as you can figure out a way to sell this to businesses, you can make it work. Sure. So Chase, who of course could not be with us today, talked about, um, or showed us this Terminus thing the other day, which is this MIT project to teach people how to use the terminal, specifically like Unix-like terminals, uh, by playing like an 80s-style text adventure. Um, it's pretty cool. Uh, and I think it's a really interesting idea for teaching people how to use computers. Because like once you get to a certain point, the GUI just doesn't cut anymore. The minute you want to start programming outside of like Visual Basic, you have to learn how a terminal works if you're going to be one, like a big kid programmer. Sure, because everything is code-based. Uh, but it's confusing <laughs> and not picture-based. Right, right. <laughs> Right, exactly. But because like everything now is picture-based and touch-based and that kind of thing, it's super-duper weird to have to use a terminal. And so I, I like how this uses metaphors that people are familiar with, video games and pictures, to explain how computers work. Um, and then so that's really neat. That'll be in the show notes. But then also talking about thinking about the potential for places like edX and Coursera uh, to actually teach you how to do things using these sort of interactive methods and how they don't. Sure. Less than 10% of Coursera people actually finish a course on Coursera. Really? I suppose that, that yeah. actually that Coursera specifically, that holds true for me. Um, I, I've been a big, right, me big fan of lynda.com for just about everything. But, yes. but Lynda's a little bit... I, I, don't, I don't remember Coursera specifically. I, some of their work is actually built into the platform, right? Like well, you're actually like watching the lesson yeah. and doing the lesson all in your web browser. Whereas like for me, I made... My my one and only currently uh, iOS app is a little tip calculator app, and it was just to get classic, and it was just to get some experience in Swift and kind of see what it was about. And I built right. that entirely off of watching uh, a Lynda.com series where I went along and followed all the little steps, and they walked through each part of the process and watched a little video, and I had Swift up in one window and uh, the Lynda video up in another, and I would just bounce back yeah. and forth and follow along and pause and and do and pause and do, and so right. For me, that worked really well. The big issue was That's exactly right was because it wasn't a structured go to a class, sit down and learn. 
And because I have a big kid job and everything else, it was, Mm -hmm. I had to intentionally put time on my calendar two days a week where it was like today for an hour to lynda.com video and watch a video and do the work. And so I think I ended up spending probably five or six weeks going through videos and then would jump back and rewatch things when I was actually trying to like put the finishing touches on my app. Yeah. Um, and so, so for me, it was self-learning worked well and, and it, it was nice. And the fact that I didn't have to go to a classroom or do anything worked well, but I think it, it takes a very specific kind of person with very specific drive to do that kind of project. You're okay. You're killing me. This is a, you're cause you were, this is the textbook case for what is actually good learning. So Coursera, I think fails because it is just expecting people to be self-motivated to continue the same sort of classroom learning style they did everywhere else. It's lectures, then it's assignments, and maybe there's a little bit of interaction, but it's essentially just transplanting the typical classroom learning environment onto the web. But what you're talking about with Linda is Linda's really good because it splits these videos out into specific like they're, they're short videos. The longest ones are usually like 15, 20 minutes long for each tip for each topic. And then they also show a transcript. So you can jump to exactly where you need to be. So if you were having a specific problem with your Swift app, you can go find the category and then jump down to where you need to be in the transcript. Sure. And I think the self exploration and, and that means you can choose, you, you can solve the problems you need to solve when you need the help to do it. Uh, but you can be self-directed until you need that help. But where would you, what you're talking about is great. It is exactly right. Like you need some motivation in order to keep doing that sort of thing. That, Cause you're not the kind of person who's naturally going to keep going back to it like that. Right. And so that's what classrooms are really great for. Because you have expectations, you have a goal to reach. So you know, you have to do that because like the goal is to do this or else you will, you won't pass, you won't graduate, blah, blah, blah. Right. The same thing you normally get, but also you now have a teacher who can help motivate you to reach that goal. And really importantly, teach you the skills, the executive skills you need in order to become effective at self-motivation to reach goals that you set yourself. Sure. So I, I imagine a classroom where early in elementary school, you are highly directed. You have goals you have to reach and your teacher will give you the steps you need to do it. And as you get, you go through the grades and, and you become like just a smarter and more capable adult, you lose or there's, there's less of that direction and more self-motivation and self-direction because you're being taught the skills you need to do that sort of stuff on your own. You're taught how to self-direct, how to regulate your time and that kind of thing. So by the time you're a senior, like now you are fully self-directed and you graduate based on the strength of a project that you make and work on entirely yourself, right? Like that's a really, that's what we do in grad school and college. And that's a really powerful way I think of bringing that all the way back to the, the undergrad ed school, right. the, the under the, 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 the primary school. And also when you, when you think about the way that so many, like collegiate level courses are taught now. So many of them are online self-directed courses. Here's what you have to have done by this week. Here's what you have to have done by the end of the semester. Work at your own pace, but don't miss deadlines. And so now you have to go through and read the lesson or watch the video and do the assignment and, and Mm -hmm. slowly, you know, chisel your way through whatever the, the course is. And that as more and more classes get that way, students need to be primed for that in their earlier education. Otherwise they get to college. They try to take an online class or yeah. worse, all online classes without ev- having ever just done any it. class. Well, any class, but at least the, a traditional classroom with the, the instructor structure is more similar to what they're used to. Whereas I'm thinking if you went through elementary, middle school, high school with a standard classroom, you get the, you decide to do an online degree for college 
you'd enroll in your first semester yeah. with your three or four yeah, classes, yeah, and now the whole thing is you doing your own self-motivation, and every week or two weeks or whatever it is, you basically just do a check-in and say, here's what I've learned so far that meets the criteria for what I'm supposed to have learned so far. Right. But yeah, have students it's who- not uncommon for high school students who are so used to like a super directed classroom to get to college where now it's suddenly you were expected to be able to do all this stuff outside of the classroom yourself and just totally fail at doing sure. that. And I think it, both in both regards, that's part of why there are so many students who don't succeed when they get to college. And, and so again, the idea that if, if you're being introduced to these concepts early on, whether it's having a computer in the classroom and doing some more self-guided learning or um, having classes that are more structured in that, in that manner where it's do the work at home or learn at home, and then the classroom is designed as a check-in point and a time to discuss what you learned, right. that the more things are, fo- are structured that way from a younger age the more successful the kids will typically be, or I would think they would typically be when they hit college. And then in reality, in the workplace outside of college, because at work, you don't have somebody saying, now you need to do this. And then you do, and then now you need to do this. And then you do at work. It's here's the project to be done, go do. And now you're on your own to go do the project. And every so often you have to give a status update. Right. And it's super intimidating because at least in grad school, so when I made the transition, it was terrifying because like I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And I was really good at doing that sort of thing in grad school, but because I had, I mean, even there, it was still pretty directed. You had a certain number of tasks that you were expected to do and you did those things. And then those things would slowly push you towards your goal. When you get to like work, it's like, here's our project. Here's our goal. Now figure out every single thing you need to do to do it. Right. And I think, I think, so the, this is the, I think, at least based on current research, it's the ideal way, the interactivity and the self-directedness and that kind of thing of having kids learn. And I just think for a long time, the technology wasn't available for kids to be able to learn like that just because it was so much work to, for one teacher to deal with the classroom of like 20 kids. Right. Right. And uh, now that we have widespread computer usage, we can suddenly have students who are self-directed and self-motivated and self-taught with an instructor around to help them out, but who are primarily self-directed in these sorts of things. I think that's really powerful and really cool. So what it really comes down to is having a computer in the classroom, not a problem, or an iPad or whatever. Having technology in the classroom that students utilize, not a problem. It's that the curriculum, the the classroom structure needs to adapt to fit that model for it to actually be successful. Right. It's not that it's it's not that it's a problem having them in the classroom. It's that it's just not useful unless you've shaped the curriculum to actually make them effective. You can find show notes for this week's episode at interface.fm slash 23. Sorry, I had to check the uh, episode number. <laughs> We're getting up there. Um, I know. While you're there, you can find links to all the social things and uh, links to subscribe and all that stuff. Uh, as always, thank you for being a listener or subscriber. We'll be back next Monday and every Monday. Like clockwork. You know what you need is just a helicopter. Yeah, probably. You seen a person in a helicopter? I, I think that would solve a lot of your problems. Yeah, like a little mini drone. No, no, like an actual like helicopter. I guess I shouldn't say mini drone. It's like actually be a really big drone. It's like a big ass drone.
there, there was I saw something online one day about that, and it was like the the personal personal helicopter, but it was essentially a a four prop drone. It looked like the little like realtor drones they used to take pictures of your property. Except that <laughs> right. it was it was big enough that you could fit one person in it, and it could fly. I think it was like a two hundred mile range, oh my and God. you could fly this little thing. But it flew like a drone, so you don't have all the complicated controls of a helicopter. Right. The problem right. is the only place you can fly it is like out in the desert where there's nobody around or nothing around, because otherwise it's all like right. restricted airspace. And it's like there's no way I can take off a helicopter at my house. We're too close to O'Hare. I'd get in trouble right away. Uh, there's ornithopters, but what you really want is. Uh the problem with having like a helicopter drone like that is that it would just sound like everywhere you go <laughs> for 200 miles <laughs> for 200 miles yeah earplugs noise canceling headphones it'd just be garbage the whole thing is it the mosquito XET uh no it can't because it's not a drone human sized drone Human-sized drone. Oh my god! This is the most ridiculous they, thing. I I found it. It's like a, something. The something E-Hang quad. 184. Um, I think it's this thing. Is it a thing on a gadget? Uh, it's yeah, on TechCrunch. Yeah, E E E-Hang 184. Engadget has the. Link this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. It's that also was, amazing. That was about right from CES. Yep. Little uh, personal flying machine. This is absurd. You're welcome. <laughs>